This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I think in terms of the need for energy efficiency, we're, we're speaking to the choir here. I think everybody here understands that the needs that uh, we have for it. You know, it's in the headlines every day, right? Just the last weeks, there have been many, many new... Uh, uh, headline articles. I'll, I'll highlight a couple. Obviously, carbon dioxide hitting a new level not seen in, in three million years. Um, temperature rise. Here's the temperature rise predicted for Santa Barbara. You know, three four degrees. That that's huge. Um, you know, th- this came out recently in in uh, Popular Science. Um, but again, we, we've all seen these curves. But the the uh, CO2 levels fluctuating for millions of years and and uh, since humans been around fluctuating, but now since the Industrial Revolution, it's kind of a one-way street. And this is a very scary graph, right? It really points to the need for us to do something as a planet now. And uh, certainly we in the United States need to lead that revolution in, 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 in uh, keeping this from, from continuing. So it's a very scary graph. Um, if you look at uh, emissions from the United States, in, indeed, perhaps they, they've gone down a bit, which is, which is good. Uh, but obviously, places like China, as they've developed and, and brought, you know, billion people out of poverty, uh, the CO2 levels are, are rising very rapidly, and, and that's going to just that needs tremendous uh, attention if they all adopt our refrigeration and air conditioning and, and uh, everything else. Then, uh, without getting great increases in efficiency. We're all in trouble, and uh, and obviously I think India is is not far behind that similar sort of curve. So uh, this is the other recent uh, headline. So I think this is the last of of my headlines. But uh, species extinction and and the, the fear that we could lose 25 uh, percent. So lot, lots of insects. Maybe that isn't so bad from my point of view, at least. But um, uh, you know, obviously changes in the ocean are just just huge, and, and the impact on, on, on the world is, is phenomenal. So we really need energy efficiency. We really need to change the, this dynamic. Um, so it's partially air pollution. It's partially climate change, fires that we see, uh, droughts, uh, hurricanes. And the issue now is how do we change this, uh, this progression of energy consumption or CO2 emission or whatever from where it's been to, to some much more sustainable Number And so that's really what today is about, is how do we get down to these levels? Uh, and obviously, the sooner we implement them, the better, right? So the issue is not waiting too long to get these large improvements in, in energy efficiency. So, so that's our task. Um, so the Institute from the beginning, it's now 10 years old, has not been about generation. Um, and it hasn't been about sort of improving generation for the most part. Um, I think the viewpoint is... Our viewpoint is rather than focus on how do you make you know, clean coal, uh, rather just how do you, you know, eliminate the need for, for ever more power plants and, and ever more coal generation. So there's lots of roadmaps to get there, and, and uh, the Institute has published uh, roadmaps in the past. This is one from the National Research Defense Council, um, but again, it highlights what we're, what we're going to see today. Uh, so certainly the, the first, this is sort of the growth of CO2 emissions if we don't really take any significant action. And, uh, but there is a way. You can get back you know, down to something uh, very reasonable, say just you know, one-fifth of where we are today. 
And a lot of that is energy efficiency. So that's, that's uh, the, ma the main topic today. Um, but a lot of it is, is a cleaner grid. So we'll hear from uh, Gary at Southern California Edison in the next talk. And uh, uh, electrification uh, obviously is, is, is important decarbonization. And then there's probably some increase in, in emission due to the fact that uh, nuclear power plants are being uh, retired. And we've certainly seen that in, in Southern California as well. So, so this is the target we'd like to get to. And then we'll talk today about how do you implement all the, all the ways to actually, to actually get there. Um, so this is a similar plot uh, that we've sort of used as a guideline all along of, of reducing worldwide energy usage. And, and you've seen these numbers, you know, 14, 20 terawatts. Um, and it's a combination of improvements in lighting, data centers, you'll hear about both of these today, uh, production and storage, uh, buildings, you'll, you'll see that uh, as well, transportation, manufacturing, and so forth. So that's what we need to do is, is as a planet, get to sort of a, a level consumption of, of worldwide energy, and, and, that, and that's our focus. So how do we do it? Energy efficiency, obviously, is a big part of it. Renewables, transitioning to 70% total electricity supply, electrification, um, and, and then decarbonization. And all these changes, obviously, require lots of innovation, and they have huge impacts on, for instance, Southern California Edison in the next talk. If we all have electric vehicles, that's a huge change in the grid. And uh, I don't know how one manages that transition. So I'm looking forward to seeing Gary's talk. Um, that's a real challenge. Uh, so, uh, so IE has been, in the last 10 years, focused on this. And uh, private it has been uh, uh, production. This is Alan Heger, work on, and, and many other uh, professors at UCSB on, on polymer solar cells and now putting them on windows and, and, and so forth. And uh, in the next talk, uh, after Gary's, Eric McFarland will talk about uh, uh, hydrogen economy and, and hydrogen generation and the work that, that he's doing there. So that's a big part of it. Um, I'll talk in the next couple slides a bit about sort of the work here on photonics and, and data centers. And there'll be a whole session afterwards on data centers. This is Suji Nakamura, and obviously the work on, on lighting is huge at UCSB, and, uh, uh, and then Glenn Fredrickson, and there's a lot of obviously improvement we can do in, in chemical engineering and, and chemical generation. So the institute's been around for 10 years. It's about 40 faculty, about 180 graduate students, about 12 research centers, and uh, about $40 million in total research funding. So the institute has been organized around these six themes. And I'll talk sort of where we're going in the future. So at the, at the end of this talk, I'll sort of talk about what's next. And that's kind of how today's uh, talks are organized. Uh, but certainly part of it has been the, the lighting effort. And I'll show some slides on that. Electronics, photonics, uh, computing. Rich Wolski is here. And, and there's a very strong data center session later in this morning. Uh, buildings and design, Igor Mezik. I'll show some of that impact on, on Henley Hall in particular. Uh, but Igor's technology, this advanced computer control of buildings is being widely deployed. It's, it's uh, across four continents. I mean, uh, I, I, if Igor is here, he can tell me the number. Maybe Roger remembers. Four million square feet? I don't know. Over 50 million. 50 million square feet is now under control of programs that he's developed to make buildings much more efficient than they are today. And so that's really an exciting area. Um, then production storage, Guy Bazan, then economics and policy. And I'll talk a bit about 
point out where there's deficiencies in, in, in that and, and the need for, for real policy change. So these are some of the highlights. Obviously, LED lighting has been very successful. Data centers actually would be consuming far more energy if we, there wasn't huge focus from all of the data center providers in making them more efficient and then the work from Igor I just talked about. So in terms of lighting, I think we all understand that. Um, you know, there's six billion light bulbs uh, just in the United States alone. And unfortunately, you know, a large fraction of those have not changed over, right? So uh, typically we have 40, 50 sockets and maybe most of us are good at maybe getting 10 or 20 of those converted over, but we have to do much better. Um, so typically about 15% of household usage and as, as we all know, 90% you know, of it makes them hot instead of putting out light. And so LEDs are at least six times more efficient and they pay for themselves in, 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 in a year. Um, so this is the impact. We're, we're going from you know, levels of incandescent light bulb of 16 lumens per watt to 300 lumens per watt. And uh, that eliminates a lot of power plants, right? 300 uh, gigawatt power plants, uh, 30 gigawatt power plants. Uh, and, and eliminate a whole lot of CO2. So this obviously is sort of the poster child for the success of, of energy efficiency. Um, and again, there's a lot of research here and you know, 10 different professors focused on uh, obviously the invention of the blue LED by Suji Nakamura in particular, um, but all the research by Steve and Suji and Jim Speck and others on, on improving the efficiencies of blue and green LEDs and now looking at integrating these multiple colors together in, in single units. And I think UCSB will be a real leader in Li-Fi. And so using the, these emitters, not just for uh, lighting, but also for communication. And uh, so that, that's a really exciting area. And a lot of this is based on now lasers rather than LEDs. And again, for high power, lasers are much more efficient. They don't have the same droop issue that LEDs do. And so and there's a lot of research, Ram Shashardi and others, in terms of phosphors to, uh, to make the right color of light. And, and again, make them more efficient and make them uh, obviously a lot cheaper such that they can be widely deployed. So again, this is chart Steve Denbars has shown many times. The progression of all the different lighting technologies and sort of what LEDs have done. And, uh, and, and we're still nowhere near what we can get to. So that's, that's the goal of at least 28 lumens per watt. And then again, very efficient. Uh, emission of that light, of collection into something useful, whether it be a, a headlamp or a street light or, or room lights, whereas obviously incandescent lights emit in all angles. Lasers in particular are very focused and, and uh, allow the extraction efficiency to be much higher as well as the generation efficiency. So it's not just this number, but also the, the ability to, to collect that light and, and use it usefully. Now here's where standards come into play. So we all know about the standards, the elimination of the incandescent light bulb that's supposed to happen, uh, but that's actually at risk. Um, so uh, DOE has proposed rescinding the, the, the transition, the requirement, or the elimination of incandescent light bulbs. And uh, that's, that's really scary. That would be a big step backwards for the United States. I'm afraid it will happen. We all sort of need to, to rise up and, and talk to our, our uh, congressmen about it. Um, so we, we may actually in the United States take a step backwards, which would be really unfortunate. Um, and there's really no reason to do it, right? I mean, all the suppliers uh, of LEDs that are you know, making them for every different light fixture and, and configuration, and there really isn't a need to roll it back and say, oh, we, we can't supply with LEDs. There's a few small cases, right, 
Ovens uh, would be one example where LEDs are maybe not a good solution, but that's a really small fraction of, of, the, of the total. So the fear is that we'll become the dumping ground for inefficient light bulbs, that places that have incandescent light bulb factories will dump them at low prices and, and, and we'll be consuming a lot more electricity than we need to. So standards and, and, uh, are, are obviously hugely important in all these different fields. So this is an example for lighting, but the same thing is true uh, for data centers, it's true for, for our uh, televisions at home, our set-top boxes and so forth, that if we don't set standards and require improvements in their efficiency, we'll, we will all consume more and more energy. Uh, certainly our cable set-top boxes that are always on, or our, our speakers, our smart speakers that are always listening to whether we want them to do something, those all take energy all the time, and, and we really need uh, all of the manufacturers to make much more efficient devices and, uh, and standards are probably necessary for that. So I'll talk a little about data centers. There'll be a whole session on data centers uh, later th at the end of this morning. Um, they consume today about 4% of electricity, about 870 billion kilowatt hours per year. Um, but the scary part about it is traffic is doubling every 18 months. And so that means in nine years, you're 64 times the, the traffic. And, and if if they keep uh, moving forward, then uh, if we don't make them more efficient, then that's a disaster. And so that, that's the focus uh, that we have. If you look at how much carbon is being emitted today, it's not that large. I mean, well, it is large, but compared to other major industries, it's, it's not dominant yet. But the problem is this whole growth rate. And uh, the growth rate of, of data centers is so much faster than these other industries that very quickly it, 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 it dominates. and, and uh, you know, from where we are today to, to just, you know, a few years from now. So that's, that's why we need to have a focus on it. Uh, this is a, a plot from the uh, Department of Energy, and it just shows the, the growth of data center electricity. And if we hadn't implemented electricity efficiency improvements, uh, this, is, this is what it would have done based on the, the capacity that we've all seen being built by Facebook and Amazon and everybody else. But fortunately, the data center operators are spending lots of money on powering the data centers and, and they're, they're, I think, socially conscious and, and have really worked hard to, to make data centers much more efficient such that even though the, the capacity and the computation is rising rapidly, the actual electricity consumption has been re reasonably flat. And there's a whole lot of ways that we can use to, to make them ever more efficient. And I'll talk about some of those in, in, in a couple of charts. So here's an example. Uh, this is a plot sort of looking backward, but just the, the amount of money being spent to buy new servers versus the amount of money being spent on power, right? Driving those servers and then cooling them, extracting the heat from them. And fortunately, again, there have been huge improvements in, in extraction efficiency, very efficient getting heat out of these data centers. But still, you can see the cost of, of providing power and refrigeration is, is very close to the amount of money being spent on, on, uh, on the servers themselves. So um, this is, again, just showing the growth of the industry. This is the increase in fiber optic traffic from, from where we are today, so at uh, nine zettabytes per year. So in just three years, that basically doubles, right? So that's, that's what's scary about this whole field. We're all downloading much more information. We're much more dependent upon putting data in the cloud. And uh, so doubling this in three years is obviously huge uh, demand on, on uh, you know, Verizon and AT&T and, and Google and, and everybody else. And similarly, stored data is rising even faster, 51% compound annual 
data rate. So um, there are some solutions to it, and, and part of it's related to this, and, and a lot of our research here is related to this topic, which is that the fiber optic end of it, which today obviously is all long distance transmission, but it stops you know, typically at Iraq, right? And, and Iraq is all interconnected electrically today for the most part. Um, and that takes a huge amount of power, right? Uh, at, at 10 gigabit, 40 gigabit, now 100 gigabit, you know, driving those lines at these high speeds, charging them up and discharging them takes lots and lots of power. And the change that's happening now is that you know, we can't go beyond 12 terabits per second, which is where switch chips are today doing that model. There just isn't enough pins, they don't have enough capacity, and too much power is being spent to do so. So as we make this transition to 25 terabits per second, which is on everybody's roadmap for, for year after next, optics has to come a lot closer. Optics has to be on the board. They're not going to be on the edge of the board in pluggables as they are today. They're going to be uh, onboard optics and maybe co-packaged optics. And certainly at 50 terabits per second, that absolutely must be true. So the packages will have photonics inside of them, and you won't have to drive an electrical line to the edge of, the, of that circuit board and all, and then at the end of that, you always have to have clock and data recovery, which takes at least a watt per, per line. And you have thousands of lines, that adds up to a tremendous amount of power uh, per board. So this is where the world's headed. Um, you'll have these massive switch chips at you know, seven nanometer lithography, 50 terabits per second, and then all around it will be optics. And at some point in the future, the optics will actually go onto that chip itself. Uh, but that's probably the, the second stage of what will happening. But anyway, this co-packaging is going to happen. It'll certainly happen probably within two years, if not certainly four years. And then that means optics needs to be on silicon. So for a lot of us at UCSB, we've been focused on optics on silicon for this reason, that in the future this was absolutely going to happen. And the problem, as you all know, is that silicon is a really inefficient light emitter. So today there's more or less two separate camps, right? The whole uh, you know, internet, uh, indiophosphide-based communications uh, business and there's silicon and processors and memory and switch chips and they're merging together and uh, so um, here's some of the, the market trends so again we've really focused on on silicon photonic uh, transceivers and we came up with this silicon laser 10 years ago with Intel and they've licensed that technology and they've ramped it basically from zero to about 200 million dollars a year last year so uh, very rapid ramp and looking at something like 400 million next year. So if you look overall at the industry, and there's a number of players, not just Intel, uh, the sales of, of silicon photonic transceivers is growing very, very rapidly. So it, it's, and and it, it's really scaling to meet this need to, to put the devices uh, on a co-package. That hasn't happened yet. Everything today is still pluggables, but what I mentioned about co-packaging is, is where it's all headed. So we're moving from these plug-in units on the outside to putting the photonics around the edge of some very high density chip. And uh, this particular chip is sort of way beyond where the world is today, but this is one of our projects I'll talk about in a second. Um, and then if you just sort of look at the connectivity again, so that as, as switch chips go to, to 50 terabits per second, which is where Broadcom and, and everybody else plans to be in, in, uh, in four years, the, the capacity of the connections that have to increase. So these chips have a radix typically of 30 to 60. And so if you say it's a radix of 60, then that means all of your ports have to be these 400 gigabit ports. And so again, that's just tremendous growth. We've all seen on our, on our laptops going from 10 megabit to 100 megabit to gigabit to maybe 10 gigabit. 
Um, we're now looking at 400 gigabit interfaces in something that initially will look like this, but eventually will end up being on here. And there's a whole lot of challenges with doing that, one of which is certainly just reliability. The reason these things are, are pluggable is so that when they fail, you can unplug them and, and replace them very cheaply. Once you have this very expensive switch chip with all the optics on there, it damn well be very, very reliable. And, and uh, so that's, that's a big challenge. And we actually do a lot of work on reliability here now on, in terms of these uh, uh, 3.5 chips in silicon. I'm very grateful Intel has sent us a reliability rack. They've been doing all the reliability for the last five years, and, and uh, we can now do it here. So it was a very nice donation that they've made. So here's the latest project in this. It's just about to start. It's a big project. It's $8 million. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Quill, but the goal now is to take this 100 terabit core. So again, that's beyond where industry is today. We have, we have to make our own version of a 100 terabit core, and Luke Figaraj in here is doing that. So there's no intelligence there. It just generates 100 terabits of data, which is a lot of data. And then we have to build all the optical interconnects to get the data off that. And this is what that looks like. Um, so again, these are the, this is the work that, that Luke is doing here. This is the work that Dan Blumenthal and I are doing at UCSB in collaboration with, with Sienna and Cisco in, in particular, and Morton Photonics. But the goal of this project is to go from where we are today of, of 100 picojoule per bit. That's how much energy it takes to, to send a bit somewhere and uh, down to 1,000 times less than that. So again, as capacities increase, the, the amount of power you can get out of a chip is limited, out of a package is limited. So we really have to make them more efficient. And we have a path. We think we can achieve this. It's incredibly aggressive. It's incredibly risky. Uh, but that, that, that's our goal. Here's a little more detail in terms of what that looks like. The details don't matter to, to most of you. But um, there's a whole lot of optics here, right? So these are all photonic integrated circuit chips. Andy Netherton here is a student laying these things out as we speak. Hopefully he's up there doing it rather than listening to me. Um, and, uh, but this is a level of complexity of integration that photonics is not at, right? The biggest anyone has done anywhere is about 1,000 elements, well, 1,500 elements integrated on a chip. Um, in fact, uh, Juniper here in town has made a one terabit chip with about 1,500 elements integrated together on it. Um, but this is going way beyond that. So these are all, all these little circles are, you can see them here, those are all modulators. And uh, they come from one laser, which is providing this, a lot of optical power to do this. And then uh, this is all the electronics to drive it that, uh, that Luke is doing. So these are the partners, and, and uh, it, it's very exciting. So I mean, I think data centers can continue to improve, and, and in fact, Fiber optics has improved its efficiency by literally more than a factor of a million over the last uh, uh, 30 years. So we just have to continue that, and, that, and that's the goal. So as uh, Rod mentioned, there's, there's a new building being built uh, just over here, Henley Hall. And uh, uh, so if, if you go by, there's a lot of concrete being poured. This is what it looks like. Um, it well, should open next summer. So again, uh, Rod and, and uh, Pierre Bultzius in, in sciences have hired lots of new faculty. And there's a lot of new faculty in the battery area and, and other areas of relevance to, to buildings, uh, to, to energy efficiency. And so I, I think uh, the, the need for this building is, is huge. Um, it's about 50,000 square feet. Uh, this is what it looks like looking, we're actually over on this side. So that's sort of what it looks like from this side. There's an office side, there's a laboratory side. There's 17 laboratories in here. Um, this is the center of it, so there's this atrium. The whole building is intended to be, well, at least the office area, 
uh, as much naturally lit, naturally ventilated as possible. So these windows at the top all are automatically controlled by Igor's uh, hopefully very clever mechanism that hopefully closes when it rains. And, and uh, uh, I hope it's his phone number that's on the emergency uh, rather than mine. But, um, but anyway, it's supposed to draw heat up out of here and, uh, and cool all these. these uh, and as you can tell, the, the, there's a lot of glass in here such that you can, this lobby will be naturally lit as, as well as much of the building. Um, this is what the, the floor plan looks like. So again, there's an office area that's all naturally ventilated. There's a laboratory area because of the needs of the laboratory. is much more temperature controlled, and that ends up using more of the energy for it. But compared to a, a state-of-the-art building today, we're looking at about 40% energy savings over that. And uh, so there's, there's a whole lot of different aspects that go into here. It's actually much more efficient than this building, which is a pretty efficient building. Uh, ESB next to us, um, including using things like chilled beams rather than forced air conditioning for temperature control and, and things like that. So there's a lot of aspects. We, we started from the very beginning of the design with how do you make it the most energy efficient that you can. So here's a little bit of an example of that. The, the lab area is, is controlled uh, in terms of temperature and airflow. A lot of the labs obviously are, uh, have clean hoods in it. There's a lot of chemical engineering uh, in, in, in this building as an example. And uh, the office area is, is, again, much more naturally lit and, and naturally ventilated. So um, the last thing I want to talk about is just sort of where we're headed from here. And, uh, and uh, Mark Abel in particular, who's uh, had a lot to do with today's uh, session, uh, has been working, organizing faculty in terms of where do we go from here, which is what we're calling 2.0 for the next 10 years. And so we still have those six basic structures that, that I showed at the beginning, but we're now reorganizing them differently. So part of it is, is basically smart infrastructure. So again, how do we evolve the grid uh, to support where we're headed, right? So if we go from where we are today, where most of us don't have electrical vehicles, to we all have electrical vehicles, and, and the, charge, the electricity required to charge those is huge. And as we move to 100% renewables, again, the fluctuations in that and control of that, the need for for storage in the network is huge. And so Manoush uh, and others uh, are very much leading that at UCSB. Um, Igor and others in terms of smart buildings, um, solid state lighting, obviously, and uh, energy storage and production. The other main pillar here is, is computing and communications. And so again, uh, looking at all these issues, now I, I focused on one of them, which is closer to our research, namely the, the data center and that optical inter interconnects there. But a lot of it is certainly edge computing and just overall the, the software aspects. And, and Rich Wolski leads a, a large group of people looking at, at the cloud and, and, and making that architecture is much more efficient than, than it is today. Uh, again, just as one obvious example, you know, today servers spend a lot of time waiting for data to come back because the cost and the capacity of the interconnects is limited. If we can increase that, have other architectures that are more efficient, then you can make the existing server design you have today much more efficient. And, and so there's, there's a lot of architecture aspects here that are hugely important. And then things like quantum science and energy. And so there's a lot of professors here working on, on quantum science. Uh, and Anya Jayich is, is leading this effort here. And again, that could be thousands of times more efficient for certain sorts of problems. Um, and the last one, which we'll have a, a, a number of talks on today, is this food, energy, water nexus. and. Uh, uh, Shonda Krins will talk about smart farming and obviously 
There's a lot of work on, on vertical farming, of, of indoor farming, and in many cases that can take you know, 1 to 10% of the water that it takes for an outdoor farm. And so that's a huge advance in water efficiency, as well as energy efficiency, because obviously it takes a lot of energy to pump uh, that water here. About 10% of electricity usage in California is uh, consumed pumping water around. So um, there's a lot of groups here in, in Bren and environmental sciences. In the last talk of the day, uh, Ranjit will talk about uh, this area very much. So that'll, that'll close the day off today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.